Support for today's show comes from MyBookie. Trust me, guys, they're your best bet this season. They've been in business for years, have great reviews online, and their mobile site is easy to use. Not to mention they have in-game live betting and the most rewarding player perks in the business. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code MLB when creating your account to claim up to $1,000 in free play. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. And don't forget to use the promo code MLB when creating your account to claim the bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. We're half awake in a fake empire. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Uh, we are, as always, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I would encourage you to check out all the numerous offerings on that channel. Uh, we're watchables, Ringer FC, and so forth, as well as the Ringer.com, home to all sorts of written and visual and audio content. Uh, we're starting football coverage. We've got some college football uh, coverage, some NFL preview material in uh, in anticipation of the start of the NFL season this week. Uh, but on this show, we talk about baseball. So we're going to jump right into that with Zach Cram. So we begin this week as we do every episode, and that is with the man who put the cram in the cramalama ding dong, Zach Cram. I haven't How heard that one before. Hello. Really? Okay. I, we'll see if uh, if that gets edited out for purposes of decency. And if uh, Bobby comes back in about an hour and a half and says, actually, you need to re-record that, that intro. But uh, I think it's fitting for an episode that we're trying not to take too seriously. Uh, so just to give the listeners a a rundown of what we're going to be doing uh it's obviously after labor day we're into the last month of the season we're down into the stretch run so what we're going to do is make some bold predictions and these are things that uh we don't a hundred percent believe but i guess are conversation starters things that plausibly could happen that would make the the stretch run uh, more interesting. So I'm going to have one each for my segments with Zach, Claire, and Ben, and each of them will bring on one of their own. So I guess without any other uh, any other delay, let's let's get started. What do you got, Zach? All right. So I have a pitch for you. Um, okay. There's a team that we talked about earlier in the season and haven't talked about much since. And along with Oakland and Boston, they're tied for the AL's best record since the start of August at 20 and 10. They have the best run differential of any team since then. They've won series against New York, Cleveland, and Boston, the last one in a sweep in that span. Going all the way back to May 19th when they implemented a bold new strategy, they have the major second-best ERA behind only the Dodgers and the third-best FIP behind only the Dodgers and the Astros. And at the trade deadline, despite giving away both their starting catcher as well as one of their best starting pitchers and, most notably, uh, their nominal ace, they also brought in an outfielder who earned MVP votes last season and has hit 300, 400, 483 since coming to Tampa. Plus, the young pitcher they acquired as part of the trade for their nominal ace has been even better in a Rays uniform. What I'm saying is this, Michael, the Rays, who are currently eight games behind Oakland for the second wild card, will not only pass Seattle, but give the A's a real scare down the stretch. I like this. They've been they've been really good, and I think that there's... There are a couple good reasons why they haven't gotten the kind of shine that the A's have gotten or the Mariners have gotten or even I don't know, the Rockies in the National League over the course of the season. The first one is obviously they're so far out of the playoff race, even as well as they've played, even though they, you know, they might be competitive. And if they were in the National League East with this roster or the National League West or the AL Central, there's 
so I mean, just even good teams that are 20 games out just don't get a whole lot of press. Um, and the second one is that there's sort of a fine line between praising a team for going a little bit over 500 with a rock bottom roster like that. We've sort of realized the the fraught nature of doing that in the uh, in the about a decade plus after Moneyball. Um, and we've talked about that too, uh, a lot. But I think that those sort of reasons for ambivalence have masked how good they've been over the uh, over the past couple of months and really over the season as a whole. And uh, to be clear, I know you introduced the segment by saying we don't necessarily believe these things. Uh, the Fangraphs playoff odds currently give them a 0.2% chance of reaching the playoffs, which means if the season ran from this point forward 500 times, the Rays would make it only once. So I'm not saying this is likely. I'm not saying this is going to happen. Uh, but I do think it's worth talking about how the Rays have, to an extent, played spoiler over the last month. I mean, them sweeping Boston basically ended any chance the Red Sox had at challenging the single-season wins record. But also that Seattle has been stagnant for so long now that if Tampa happens to sweep Oakland when they meet in a week or two, then it could actually, you know, finally another team could give a wrinkle to the AL's like five-team hegemony atop uh, the playoff race right now. Right, and what you said about them possibly passing Seattle, I don't think that's that hot a take anymore. I think we're just realizing that that, that gap is coming down real quick. And, and But like you said, where they are right now, where you said if they sweep o- if they sweep Oakland, then we might have a playoff race. That's still, we're still a ways off from, uh, from any of that actually from that getting close enough to where we have to talk about the Rays as serious playoff contenders in at least in 2018. The interesting thing about Tampa is I think both of us at the trade deadline were pretty bullish on the trade return they got for Chris Archer. Tyler Glass now has been pretty sensational since coming over from Pittsburgh. In six starts, he has a 3.23 ERA. He's striking out better than 11 per nine innings while walking only 2.9. And 2.9 is like, Still not the best walk rate, but compared to what Glasnow was in Pittsburgh, that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And they got Jalen Beeks back for Nathan Eovaldi, and Jalen Beeks has been pretty good. Tommy Pham has basically picked up from where he was at the beginning of the season and last season in St. Louis. So it's kind of what the Rays do, but they are setting themselves up, I think, for future success. And it's just maybe manifesting a little bit early uh, down the stretch this year. I think they are about as good as you can possibly be given the sort of unorthodox, you know, sort of bargain basement, uh, you know, playing around the margins type of team they've built. And they've, you know, they've done all sorts of, of interesting things to fill off the roster, made a lot of really clever trades, and they're getting a lot out of players. You know, uh, Sam Miller wrote about Ryan Stanek uh, last week, who's a pitcher who went from a potential number one overall pick when he was in college to really off the radar. And they they've found a role for him to be extremely effective in and just stuff like that. They've been really smart about it, but they're at a point where is 10 games over 500 or wherever they end up. If they end up 15 games over 500, is that sort of the ceiling for the kind of team that they built and they need to actually reinvest and and makes, make a serious attempt to, to chase down the, the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, But that's like, you know, but like I said earlier, that's a question for, for 2019 and beyond. Um, Yeah. I, I like this team a lot. Uh, down the stretch as a potential spoiler. Uh, you know, they've already, like you said, knocked the Red Sox off their potential 100 and 
1016 win pace, but I've got a counter take for you. Okay. Go for it. In the month of September, Kirby Smart will have more coaching victories than Buck Showalter. So you're making this uh, combination baseball college football podcast now. Yep. And the reason you're getting this one is that you pay attention to college football and Ben and Claire do not. So, so Georgia, the rest of this month plays, I'm looking at their schedule now. They play four more games against teams that they should beat pretty handily. So is your prediction that Buck Showalter will be fired before the end of the season or that the Orioles will win fewer than four games? In the rest of September, oh, I'm counting. I'm counting Georgia's Georgia's win against Austin P. Okay, so uh, over five. The you think so the, the five? Or- and and I should have said we'll win as many or or more games as Buck Showalter, Kirby Smartwell. So I think there's a possibility that the Orioles, who have already won as few as six games in a month this season, and have a, I know you're the big schedule guy. Um, here's who the here's who the Orioles have. They have Seattle on the road twice more uh, tonight and tomorrow. Rest of this week, they are on the road at Tampa. Then they have Oakland at home, the White Sox at home, Blue Jays at home, and then their last three series are at the Yankees, at Boston, at Houston uh, for four games to end the season. And all those teams are not only six of the best seven teams in the, in the American League, but uh, all those teams will presumably have something to play for right down to the wire. So I think Baltimore, could, which is already... Uh, 0-3 on the month, having lost two to Kansas City, is already in serious trouble. I think Georgia going 5-0 and is feels like a pretty good bet. I think it's possible that, I mean, we've seen this so many times where a manager, we know he's going to get fired, and then like the last weekend of the season, the team finally makes the move and has a bench coach uh, coach the last couple games of the season. I think that's a possibility. Uh, you know, I think Buck Walter's sort of on his last legs. And even if I'm wrong, that means one of two things happens. Either South Carolina beats Georgia this weekend or the Orioles have a good month of September. So that means that either I'll be happy or Mal will be happy or I'll be right. So this is the basis for my take, which is partially part take and part reverse jinx. So if this comes true, and I'm not saying it will, but looking at that schedule, it's certainly compelling. I mean, if they enter the last stretch of the season and their last uh, nine games are against the Yankees, Red Sox, and their last, uh, 10, their games. last 10 games. Yeah, against, it's a four-gamer in Houston. That, they or, sorry, could, in Baltimore against Houston. They could easily go 0-10 in that stretch. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that it does make me like appreciate the 2003 Tigers more because even if the Orioles go with four wins the rest of the month, they'll still end up with, I think, one win more than that Tigers team. So it really is impressive how just how terrible I guess the worst team of our lifetimes was, but I don't think this is going to happen. But you've laid out a I don't a think it's going to happen either. But you've laid out a compelling case. Um, here's one other thing that I've been thinking about the the worst team you brought up the Tigers. The worst team in baseball history by acclamation is the. The 1962 Mets are the worst team in modern baseball. Well, yeah, history. you're forgetting about the Spiders. I just had like 38 and 117 in my head. I was like, I forget which team that's attached to. I know it was so far beyond. Like the they did Sports Center by Carrier Pigeon. It's so far in the past. Um, so let's say that a team went 41 and 161. Would you consider that to be breaking the Mets record or no? You mean 41 and 121? Oh yeah, 121. I think, oh, that's a really good question. I think I would not because it's a better winning percentage, 
but it's also more losses. So mm-hmm. it, it depends how you're considering the biggest loser. It, it, does volume count? Right. And I, I I mean, we think about the 2001 Mariners as having tied that Cubs team, but the Mariners had more losses, even though they had an equivalent. They both the 1906 Cubs and the 19 or sorry, the 2001 Mariners both won 116 games with the Mariners lost both games. So I think like the way we talk about the all time wins record makes me think that a, hundred, a 41 and 161 you know, hypothetical uh, slightly worse timeline, t- 2018 Orioles would uh, we, I would consider them to be the worst team of all time. Well, one of my favorite stats of the season was the one from uh, a week ago where the Orioles have completed a losing streak cycle, where they've oh. had uh, distinct losing streaks this year of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine games, which is a dumb stat, but also the kind of thing that appeals to me because it's revealing but and just very fun. I think if any franchise has uh, an experience with long losing streaks that could put them on the verge of challenging the loss record, it's the Orioles. Uh, but I think I, I would circle that home White Sox series uh, in mid-September as a chance where they can maybe win two out of three and uh, I guess put some pressure on Kirby Smart to hold know. up his end of the bargain. White Sox people are talking themselves into Carlos Rodon and Reynaldo Lopez, and I I would not pencil them in to win that series. I, I think it's, I would almost say it's likely they don't win a series for the rest of the year. I think that's certainly true. I, I think they're the worst team in baseball and picking them to beat any team in two out of three is foolish as uh, their weekend series against the Royals showed. But even in that series, they lost two games by a single run. I'm going to guess the rest of the way the Orioles win, ooh, I'll say seven games, which is probably too many. I think the the Fangraphs uh, predictions which do adjust for schedule, so they take that into account. They have the Orioles winning nine games the rest of the way, which seems on the high side. Uh, yeah, they've their month-by-month records, one and one in March, and then seven wins in April, nine in May, six in June, nine in July, eight in August, 0-3 oh so far in September. They've been consistent. You can't deny them that. Yep, yep. Let's see what their one run... Oh, well, this is the problem. They're eleven and twenty-five in one-run games. So they're you know you flip that to their customary twenty-five and eleven, and we're we're uh, shitting on the Royals reflexively, not the Orioles. One of many things that have changed about the Orioles since twenty fourteen. Too true. All right. Well, thank you for gracing the podcast with your, uh, I would say, fairly well reasoned hot take. I guess it's going to be my job to just completely blow. Uh, uh, blow everybody out of the water with the outrageousness of these takes. But I I think you made a pretty good case for the Tampa Bay Rays. Thank you and uh, have a good week. All right. We'll talk to you later. We'll be right back with Claire McNear after these messages. Whether you're sore from a game of pickup soccer or haven't played sports in years, Mattress Firm has a mattress for every body and every budget. If you're not getting enough great sleep and would like to score big with a mattress upgrade, Mattress Firm's here for you. Mattress Firm has more than 3,000 stores nationwide, so there are no roadblocks when it comes to finding a perfect bed at the right price. And they'll deliver to you on the same or next day for free. Talk about delivering in the clutch. They're like if pro baseball's best closer took the form of a mattress. And you can even sleep on it for 120 nights to make sure it fits like a glove. Mattress Firm has a perfect 
exclusive game plan in place to ensure you get the best mattress for your body and budget. And right now, when you use the code PODCAST10 at mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can take an additional 10% off of already low prices. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and take 10% off today and start sleeping better tomorrow. All right. Our second hot take artist on today's show is your friend of mine, Claire McNear, joining us from the fiery crucible of Washington, D.C., as I understand it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Lovely here as always. Very humid. Very, very humid. One other thing that I have been told is hot is your takes. So give me a a hot baseball take for uh, for September. All right. Well, I will caution that my hot take might not sound like a hot take at all, but it is. And I will explain why. So my hot take is that Bryce Harper of the Washington Nationals for at least right now is going to go on a tear and make his departure this upcoming offseason, which is all but certain, that much rougher for Nats fans. And I know, I know this might seem counterintuitive. He's a superstar. He just won the home run derby here in D.C., but he's actually having kind of a lousy year in a lot of respects. You know, he's batting just 246 and His 2018 campaign right now is worth just 1.3 war, which if that holds, it would be the second worst of his whole career um, after just 2014, which was the only year that he was not named an all-star. So my hot take, such as it is, is that Bryce is going to use this last month of the regular season to remind us all, I mean, particularly the people in Washington, D.C., what he's capable of um, and kind of pour salt into um, that wound of of Nats fans spent the whole year already preparing to say goodbye. So near as you can tell, where are, or I guess near as you could speak for, for Nats fans, where do you think the, the collective mood is in terms of not just this season, which is all but over, but, uh, you know, Bryce Harper, you know, is there optimism that he will resign or, or does everybody seem to think that this is it? Oh, no, I think, I think the general mood is, is mostly gallows humor on this. And, and, and actually a lot of people, I don't think this would read as a hot take here in DC because I think the prevailing thing in this might be sort of a, an attempt at comfort. Um, you, you hear a lot, well, Bryce Harper is actually not very good. You know, he's, he's been terrible for years, which, you know, may or may not actually be true, but, um, I, I think there's been a lot of fatalism around him. So I think it would be very Washington force of him to, uh, to kind of pour salt into that one. So, yeah, Harper's Harper's had an interesting season. Where I, I mean, the defensive metrics have obviously been killing him, and that's where that's where a lot of the the negative value comes in. But you know, he's having a good season in other respects. He's leading the National League in walks. He has a three eighty one OBP, and that's sort of it. Sort of feels like a microcosm for the Nationals' entire season as a whole, because uh, they've just had a, a. I mean, just the extent to which they are underperforming their their run differential, for instance, or the uh, incredible performances by not just uh, you know Max Scherzer, Juan Soto. Um, they don't feel like the third best team in that division, and to a large extent, they haven't really played like the third best team in that division. But you know, it's just one of those situations that because of the timing, because it's it's Bryce Harper's. Well, to hear you say it, it's Bryce Harper's last season uh, in Washington. It just feels like a almost more like a capitulation than a, a missed opportunity. Right. I mean, I, I would be uh, love to not mention that right now the Nats are sitting at 69 and 69. I mean, this has been a whole, it's remarkable. And I've been meaning to sort of look up the, the precedent if there is one for this, because they've just been at 500 and almost exactly 500 for basically the whole season. Like it's, 
it's not, you see a lot of good teams underperform because they're in a slump or they had, they lost, you know, a star player or, you know, some combination of things. But the Nats have really just kind of been at this like so-so state for literally the whole season. And I think that's been sort of a grind for people watching this team every day because it's, it's totally reasonable to expect more and better from basically everybody on this team or to have it add up in, in a way that would put the Nats higher. But for some reason, it just has not clicked. All right. Well, let's leave the Nats in the uh, we had we got to their 69 and 69 records. So mission accomplished. Um, I it ju- it just happens that most of the, the, the hot takes on the show are about East Coast teams and players. So I wanted to uh, to sort of look towards the West Coast and I wanted to highlight Kyle Freeland, who is having uh, the Colorado Rockies left hander who's having a. Uh, the kind of season would get him Cy Young votes, if not for Max Scherzer, Jacob DeGrom, and Aaron Nola, who are so far out ahead of the pack. Um, Kyle Freeland right now has a 2.97 ERA. Let me just make sure that I have 2.96 ERA, so I shortchanged him a little bit. He's tied for fifth in the National League. I don't think that he's going to uh, catch. I mean, he's certainly not going to catch DeGrom. He's probably not going to catch Nola and Scherzer, who are in the 220s. Uh, but I wanted to see if he had a shot at having the best uh, season by a starting pitcher in Rockies history. And the the lowest ERA by any qualified starter in Rockies history, I thought, was Ubaldo Jimenez, who had two, uh, 288 in that incredible 2010 season. And it turns out that the Rockies single season ERA record holder is, do you want to guess? I had no idea who this guy I is. I have no so, idea. Marvin Freeman, who is not. Wow. Morgan Freeman, the actor, or Martin Freeman, the actor, but Marvin Freeman, who apparently uh, post went ten and two uh, with a two eighty ERA, which was a one seventy nine ERA plus in the in the mid nineties. But in nineteen ninety four, he put up those numbers. So, but his ERA was only two eighty, and it, that doesn't feel like a sufficiently hot take. Like Freeland could do that with a good you know with a, a good week this week, and then just sort of keep the status quo towards the rest of the season. So. I wanted to go for a player who has just moved from the West Coast, Andrew McCutcheon, uh, who has recently arrived in New York to play for the Yankees. Is Aaron Judge insurance? Judge is swinging off a tee, but is was supposed to be back by now. Uh, is not back by now. McCutcheon has started in right field. Uh, my hot take is that Andrew McCutcheon, from now until the end of the season, will lead all qualified Yankees hitters in on base percentage. Yeah, I mean, my sweet baby boy, Kutch, uh, I'm a Giants fan, and it was such a delight to get to see him play in orange and black for all these months. But, you know, I, I'm happy for him in that with the Yankees. We will get to see more of him this year since I do not think the Giants have much uh, October potential in them this time around. Yeah, I mean, the, the weird thing with the Yankees is, is that I feel like they were making out this uh, this judge injury to not be as serious as it, as it apparently is for a long time. Like, I think a lot of Yankees fans were surprised by the cut news. Like, oh, wait, really? Like, he's not coming back imminently? So I don't know if, what you think about that, if there's been a kind of uh, too much optimism on, on the front office side or a little bit of, um, you know, being quiet about things that, might not want to talk about yeah i don't know if it was optimism or if it was intentionally downplaying the injury or if it just like they get to a certain point and you know they get to the couple weeks that he was supposed to take off to rest and just the injury hasn't healed to the uh to the extent that that they had hoped but my default was stuff like this i mean this was the the harper injury last year the carlos correa injury um good good players on teams that are almost certain to make the playoffs 
when they get hurt between the all-star, you know, they get those six week injuries between the all-star break and, and the end of the season. Like if they're going to be back for the postseason, I don't think it's that big a deal. So my default position on injuries like that is it's not that big a deal. And, you know, we're only a couple weeks out from the end of the season and you want judge ideally like it's not enough for him to just come back for the wild card game you want him to have a couple weeks worth of, of game reps so like at this point it's a big deal if he hasn't even gone out for for a rehab assignment at this point and you know i don't know what the the timetable is certainly by this point we've learned uh to know better than to assume that he's going to be back uh right at the the bare minimum, most optimistic projection, but it, he's he's taken long enough that you worry about him, even if the injury recovers, getting back into getting his batting eye back into game shape by the time the playoffs come around. I think that's definitely true, and, and I mean with Cutch in particular, I think he's sort of um, infamous for not performing as well in the second half of the season, and that really has not been true this year. He he did pretty well in you know July and August, and um, you know the Yankees might really need that bat, so or time on base as it happens. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all for this topic. And he's not, obviously not a like-for-like like replacement. The power isn't what it once was, but he had a 357 on base percentage in, uh, in San Francisco in a in a more difficult uh, offensive environment than the one he'll face in Yankee Stadium. So I think he, he's a guy who I like that pickup because I think you put him either at the bottom of the lineup or at the top of the lineup where he's on base for guys like Stanton. Um uh, then he could score a lot of runs. I think that's a, a really savvy pickup by the Yankees. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for uh, sharing the mood of of uh, Washington, D.C. And I guess stay cool. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right. Now, before we move on to Ben Lindbergh, let's take a quick break to talk about Miller Lite. Today's episode of the Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here on the Ringer, we have our disagreements, but there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great-tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. All right, so our last, and I presume, I'm just assuming based on our entire years long history of working together, our most reluctant hot take artist uh, is my next guest, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how happy are you to be doing this? Not the biggest fan of predictions, historically speaking, but the one that I have for you today is one that I've been tracking for a few months now and that I am very excited about. It comes from the useless information department, as Jason Stark would say, but I think it's relevant to topics I don't that people think there's are such a talking thing. about in baseball today. I don't, yeah, I don't think there's such a thing as a useless information department well good i, I think that, that trivia <laughs> has there's why i'm still employed a, probably right there's a difference between trivia and uh and data i guess but uh-huh. trivia has i think has a value all its own well good i'm happy to hear you say that because i'm about to give you some trivia that hopefully has some value all right go ahead all right so jacob de Good pitcher for the New York Mets this year. He is, as everyone knows, just a lowly 8-8 eight and eight on the season if you look at his win-loss record. Of course, that is very unjust as he has been one of the very best pitchers in baseball. He has a 1968-esque 1.68 ERA right now, and he just hasn't gotten any run support. And so the really fun stat, I think, not fun for him or for Mets fans, but fun for us, is that Jacob deGrom right now has a higher 
war wins above replacement, according to baseball reference, then he has wins. So if you think about it, this is a very difficult thing to do because roughly a league average starter is worth something like two wins above replacement in a given season. And so if you're a good starter, I mean, if you're getting up into where DeGrom is, like the eight to nine win range on the season, it's really hard to have a war that high and not win more games than that, (laughs) even though wins and losses, as we know, are not the best reflection of pitcher talent. If you're one of the very best pitchers in baseball and you're pitching a lot of innings and you're making all your starts, you're going to win some games. And so Jacob deGrom looks like he will be only the second pitcher ever to qualify for the ERA title and have a higher war than he has wins. And let me tell you about the first unfortunate who had this distinction. You have to go all the way back to 1937 when poor Eddie Smith of the terrible Philadelphia A's finished 4-17 and with a 3.94 ERA, which was really good. That's a 20% better than the league average at that time. Eddie Smith just had a hard luck career all around. He finished his career. He pitched 10 years in the majors. He had a 108 ERA plus, so 8% better than the league average for his career. And he finished 73 and 113. That is a 392 winning percentage, which is uh, more than 40 points worse than the next unluckiest guy who was as good as he was. And so he really pitched in hard luck and he pitched for a lot of terrible offensive teams. I think up until the very last season of his career, he got traded to Boston and that was the first time he had ever pitched for a team whose offense had a 90 OPS plus or better. So basically he was just getting no run support for his entire career and he managed to do this. So in 1937, he started the season 0-10. He then repeated that feat in 1942. And you've got to give credit to the voters of the time. He was an all-star that year, despite starting 0-10 and finishing 7-20 and leading the league in losses. Maybe that's because most of the league was <laughs> fighting the Axis powers at the time. But still, even so, got to give credit to the people of the time who recognized that he was pretty good despite that win-loss record. Yeah, I wonder if I don't know. I have no idea what the All Star uh, record or the All Star um, uh, scenario is like back then. I was gonna say that's almost more impressive uh, than Degrom because pitchers tend to pit, tended to pitch uh, deeper into games uh, back yeah, in nineteen thirty seven than than they do now. But it looks like Eddie Smith pitched about half that season out of the bullpen. He had only four wins, but he did have five saves. While mm-hmm. Jacob Degrom <laughs> has. Uh, no saves. No saves. <laughs> yes. Um, although you know Eddie Smith, uh, his teams were were twelve and twenty five in, in games he he pitched, and Jacob Degrom or the Mets are twelve and sixteen mm-hmm. in games games Degrom pitched. I love this one. This is the <laughs> out of the six hot takes that we've had so far. This is the one that I want to to have happen the most. Me too. Uh, just because it's <laughs> such a it's such a. I was going to say weird oddity, but it, but it's just so weird. I, and for reasons that I can't really articulate, it just feels so, so appropriate for the times just because of the, the hilarious futility of, of the Mets, because mm-hmm. it, you know, it illustrates how great DeGrom has been. I mean, DeGrom is having an incredible season yeah. regardless of the, it, you know, that contrast between himself and, and team. And it also seems 
a little strange. Like they were, you know, one of the turn of the century Diamondbacks teams where Randy Johnson won the Cy Young Award and the, the Diamondbacks went 54 and 108 or whatever. Like mm-hmm. that happened at least once. Uh, this would have happened then. Um, it's and it's it's illustrative because like he's you have to pitch a lot to build up a lot of war. And yeah. you think that that would just be so antithetical to, to not getting wins, and, you know, and he's, and it's not necessarily even that, that like he's leaving with the lead and then the, the bullpen's blowing games. He's just not getting <laughs> no, run support. Like he never he's just lead. leaving, like he's giving up one run over seven innings, and then leaving the game down one, nothing. It's, yeah. it's so strange. He's basically lost by the time the game starts. And if you look at the splits in his wins, he has a 0.97 ERA in those eight starts. So he's just leaving nothing to chance. Basically, he knows the Mets might score one run and he's allowing less than one run in those games. In his no decisions, so that's 12, that's a a plurality of his starts this year, he is a 1.41 ERA in his 12 no decisions. And in his losses, the times when it all went wrong, in those eight, he has a 2.73 ERA. So usually, even if you look at good pitchers, they'll have pretty big splits in that department. Like in their losses, I mean, every pitcher, for the most part, has some bad games now and then. And Jacob deGrom does not have any bad games. What is it, a streak of 25 starts in a row now with three earned runs or fewer? It's incredible. Yeah, and it's the most Metsy stat, I think, that you could possibly imagine because even when things are going well for someone individually on the Mets, they're not going well for the team. And I first noticed that he was making a run at joining Eddie Smith in this incredibly exclusive club a few months ago. And at the time, I thought, well, there's no way that this lasts. I mean, it's only happened one time in modern baseball history, which is a lot of baseball, there's a reason why this doesn't happen very often. So either DeGrom will start pitching worse or the Mets will start winning more when he pitches. And neither of those things has happened. Do you want to talk about what this does for his Cy Young chances? Yeah, sure. So I think somewhat paradoxically, and this point was raised on the Ringers Slack discussion recently, It may actually benefit him in a way because it's bringing a lot of attention his way, certainly. And I think in the way that maybe 1942 all-star selectors recognized that Eddie Smith was not at fault for his 0-10 record at the time, I think people realized that Jacob deGrom is not responsible for his 8-8 record. I mean, the absurdity of someone pitching so well and never winning games just highlights how useless the win and losses stat is so you can't even really pretend like well he's just not pitching to the score or he's not holding a lead just as you said he never really has a lead to hold and so you can't really fault him for it and so every time he pitches there's a whole lot of attention that is focused on him and if anything there are sympathy points that he might get for pitching in these adverse circumstances so maybe it benefits him I don't see how really it could hurt him Although, I mean, he's up against, what, Max Scherzer, who's not going to be on a playoff team, and Aaron Nola, who maybe, but odds are at this point, probably Probably won't be. be. So, yeah, yeah, so if DeGrom's main competition is non-playoff pitchers, then he won't really have to deal with people who only want to give these awards to people on playoff teams. And so, at that point, you might as well just give it to the guy who suffered for his side. Yeah, and it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about, you know, was it 16 wins Zach Granke 
putting up a huge ERA for, well, a huge, a tiny ERA for a terrible Royals team or uh, Felix Hernandez winning yeah. the, the Cy Young with 14 wins. And we thought, talked about those like watershed moments. And, you know, there was a year or two ago, I remember some old cranky media figure being angry that I think it was Corey Kluber won the Cy Young with with 18 wins a year or two ago. I I think it was Kluber. I'm not 100% positive on the year or the win total, but uh but he only won with 18 wins mm-hmm. and like that was he led the American he tied for the American League lead. Like that's just the we don't see 20 win, 20 game winners anymore. Right. Or, you know, or let alone 25 game winners. And even just two years ago when Rick Porcello finished with 22 wins and was 22 and four and he didn't really have the best stats other than that. I mean, he wasn't a, a terrible choice for the award, but there were a number of other guys, whether it was Verlander or Kluber, who probably had better claims to that yeah, award. I think I'd, and, I'd have gone Kluber that year, but but yeah. like the but it was close enough that I I didn't agree with it, but I didn't think it was the craziest. Yeah, thing it wasn't seen. egregious, but it seemed like the the win losses was at least a tiebreaker for people who were trying to pick between those people. So I wouldn't say it's entirely irrelevant, but maybe DeGrom's season is just the straw that breaks its back because how can you even pretend that it's meaningful or that there's any point in looking at it when there are so many more meaningful stats out there when a guy who's been as good as DeGrom is eight and eight. It's just interesting how quickly that's happened because it's really just been in the past decade that mm-hmm. that pitcher wins went from like one of the big uh talking points for evaluating a starting pitcher certainly you know over a long enough period of time and now there are there are they are all but irrelevant like there there are plenty of good reasons to like you could make your case for Scherzer or Nola over to Grom I think those three are going to finish one two three in some order yeah but so like I didn't know offhand what Aaron Nola's record was uh until mm-hmm. I looked him up for my hot take which is Aaron Nola related but uh it's it's just so it's really stark how how much our conversation around the pitcher win has evolved over the course of the past, just the past eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons for that erosion in its reputation, obviously having to do with the rise of the sabermetric movement and greater statistical literacy. But also, I think, right. as you said, just because yeah, pitchers not are that, not going like, deep into games. Pitcher has changed right. so much. Yeah. And- People aren't making as many starts, and when they do make starts, they're not going as deep into games. They don't factor into decisions as often, and so it seems sillier by the season to judge people solely by that. And I don't know that you can really make a a big distinction between Scherzer and DeGrom this year, but I don't know whether Scherzer having three sides under his belt already hurts him, whether there is some fatigue effect there. That I think usually does. Yeah, he's won three and he's also finished in the top five for five consecutive seasons. So Mm -hmm. there may be some desire for new blood there. Yeah, I think that's why, I mean, Kershaw lost a close Cy Young race to R.A. Dickey because, well, I mean, Dickey was a better story. And he also I, this might have been the last one of the last seasons where wins actually did uh, uh, come into play. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see what, you know, everybody's looking for a reason not to give the MVP to Trout every year. Everybody, you know, mm-hmm. Albert Pujols was the best player in baseball for six or seven years and only won three MVPs. You know, the same thing all the way back to, to Mickey Mantle or Robin Roberts. And so I think like DeGrom having this gaudy ERA, I think, would uh, would give enough people a reason to uh, to 
to look for it, it's a good enough reason not to vote for Scherzer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the MVP race. That's going to be the other interesting wrinkle That's, here. I was to say, I, <laughs> right. I think I, I haven't I haven't done a deep dive on on the National League statistics, and certainly Matt Carpenter's come come on strong since yeah I wrote my midseason column. But at at the midseason mark, these guys were one, two, three in my MV, uh, NL MVP ballot. Yeah, too, the, they're the, so far off the front, right? And there hasn't really been a standout offensive season for no. a National League position player. The best individual position player seasons are all clustered in the AL. And right now, I think those top three NL Cy Young candidates are all above the top position player candidates. You could even throw Kyle Freeland in there if you believe in baseball reference war. So you've got Carpenter, you've got Goldschmidt, you've got Baez, you've got Kane and Yelich. I mean, these are all decent candidates, but none of them compares war-wise with at least the three that we're talking about here. But there is some built-in resistance, I think, to pitchers winning that award, even if statistically speaking, they might merit it, which I don't entirely mind. I know that pitchers are eligible for the MVP award, and as long as they're eligible, they are entitled to be considered. But I still sort of have the feeling that, well, they kind of have their own award that position players can't win. So position players should have their own award that pitchers can't win it it doesn't really work that way but it seems sort of fair that it it should or would Mm -hmm. all right so here's my unless you got more to say on Grom, here's my hot take which also involves like i said a national league scion candidate from the national league east and pitcher wins Mm -hmm. i think that well i don't know if i think this but i am i am putting out there for the purposes of this game that Aaron nola will collect more wins from now until the end of the season uh than the entire than every other Philly starting pitcher put together. <laughs> that seems plausible. Who's his competition right now? Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. so here's what, I mean, the Phillies are, are on a slide right now and they're in a situation where it almost seems like, I mean, this didn't hold true on, on uh, Sunday when Nola got sort of knocked around by the Cubs. Um, but they're in a position where it almost feels like they only win when when Nola's on the mound. Nola, despite losing on Sunday, has two of the Phillies' last three wins by starting pitchers. Uh, their last two, they are 0-3 in September so far. Their last two uh, winning pitchers are Sir Anthony Dominguez and Pat Neshek. Mm-hmm. And I think that because... you know Nick Pavetta and Zach Eflin and, and Vincent Velasquez have all been... Like they've they've been inconsistent, you know. They're they feel like the kind of pitcher that you would want to go twice through the order and tell them to just ramp it up for eighteen batters, and then we'll figure out something else. Mm-hmm. And Gabe Kapler seems as likely a manager to do that. Certainly, down the four games they are in the division, they're in a position where they really need to pull out the stops and just sprint from now now until the finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know Nola's got five more starts between now and the end of the season. Uh, Two of them come against the Mets. Two of them come against the Braves. One of them come against the, comes against the Nationals. So that's sort of, it's not, I don't know if that's favorable or unfavorable. Uh, but I think he's in a position where he might be, he and Jake Arrieta might be the only Phillies pitchers who routinely go more than five innings, who go mm-hmm. long enough to, to get the win, to say nothing of, I don't know if the Phillies are going to win more than more than 10 games between now and the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. So, Well, they're going up against Jacob deGrom on Sunday, so they can probably bank that one. There you go. <laughs> um, okay, so I don't know if apart from that one, they're going to win more than nine games for their or, for the rest of the season, counting five, uh, Nola's five starts. So yeah. I think this could be a situation, I mean, older Phillies fans, I don't know if what the overlap is on Phillies fans who are young enough to know what podcasts are and listen to this one <laughs> and also remember 1964. But, you know, it's sort of 
brings to mind, you know, Aaron Nola as the uh, the Chris Short or the oh, Jim Bunning was the other. I think the other uh, pitcher who when Gene Mock went to a two man rotation down the stretch like this feels like a, a situation where, it, you know, it's not out of the question that that they might squeeze a start out of Nola on short rest and have him try to go five, uh, you know, get another start in the in the last week of the season, particularly. Mm-hmm. Cause, I mean, their last. I'm looking at it now uh, 11 games are against the Braves and the Rockies, which are direct competitors for the mm-hmm. division in the wild card. So I don't think the Phillies make the playoffs if this is the case, particularly considering how their bullpen hasn't really been all that reliable. I mean, individual pitchers have pitched very well in individual spurts, but it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to when the blowups come. So yeah, if they do make the playoffs, it will probably I will be, be because, wrong about this if, yeah. if, if this make the if they make the playoffs if they do it'll probably be because Nola went on a tear and then he'll have better stats and he'll have the playoff narrative on his side and then he will cement his Cy Young win so there's that say so do you think it's possible that I was gonna say is it possible for these pitchers to split like one wins the Cy Young and another wins the MVP but seems I don't unlikely. Yeah. It yeah. seems like the only guy who can really build up a narrative at, at that point is Nola. Mm-hmm. And if he pitches well enough to build up an MVP narrative down the stretch, he'll probably also distance himself from Scherzer and, De- and uh, DeGrom. So mm-hmm. it, it, I, I think that's, it's, possible but very very unlikely at this point yeah that would have been a good hot take (laughs) yeah can i leave you with a philosophical reflection from poor eddie smith go for it all right eddie smith at the end of the 1942 season when he went 7 and 20 with a league leading 20 losses but also was on the all-star team he said things ain't never as bad as they could be so that's something for jacob Degrom and mets fans to remember yeah i was gonna say it sounds like i've that's definitely something I've told myself as a, <laughs> as a Phillies fan over the years. Yes, the wise words of Eddie Smith. All right. Well, rest in peace. I assume he's dead. Yes. Okay. Rest. <laughs> in- <laughs> I didn't want to kill Eddie Smith at the end of. Yeah, he'd the end be very lucky if he were still alive. That would have made up for a lot of. Are those you losses. sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> Things can always get worse. <laughs> well, not according. Yeah, that's true. According to him, that is uh, that is accurate. All right. Well, we will be back next week to discuss the vicissitudes of of metaphysics (laughs) and death as told by Eddie Smith. But until then, it's been a fun 15, 20 minutes with you as always. And I look forward to next week. Yes, it has. Maybe we can make a pilgrimage to Eddie Smith's grave in New Egypt, New Jersey, if anyone's listening. I have no idea where that is. I've never heard of New Egypt, New Jersey. No, neither have I. But he's at the New Jersey Veterans Memorial Cemetery in New Egypt. So now you know. All right, we'll see you at Eddie Smith's gravesite next week. All right. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. I'd like to thank Zach Cram, Claire McNear, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thank you to Kirby Smart, Bryce Harper, and Jacob DeGrom for providing us with stuff to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Jim Cunningham for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.